Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Hello, everybody. Welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. It is true that pretty much everyone has a podcast now, that you hear that a lot in the podcast community, and that's cool in lots of ways. It's very, um, it's making information sharing and independent media very accessible, democratizing, and there can be a kind of a guerrilla radio kind of pump up the volume feel to it for those of you who love early Christian Slater. Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, go see Pump Up the Volume. But we also have to face facts. There are a lot of pretty mediocre podcasts out there and it can be hard to wade through the stuff that's not really worth listening to and find the good stuff. Well, I am here to make that easier for you because I'm about to introduce you to Jana Schmeeding. Am I saying your name correctly? Yeah host of Woman of Size podcast and her show is a guaranteed good time and you will also learn a lot from her and her amazing guests. So I'm thrilled to have her here on Feminist Hot Dog. Jana, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I love your podcast. I admit to being a bit of a fangirl. (laughs) I was, (laughs) was listening to it in the car recently as listeners, as you can tell from the name of Jana's podcast, she uh, focuses uh, almost exclusively on um, guests who are women of size and talking about issues relating to uh, bodies and lives uh, related to being a woman of size. And you were talking about the plus size mannequin at, at <laughs> Nike controversy. I, don't, I, I guess it was a controversy. People seem to feel some kind of way about it yeah Uh, (laughs) you were talking about that and you said well I don't identify as mannequin but I am an ally to the plus size mannequin community and I just like fell out in the car well I didn't like literally fall out of the car but I was dying and and that's that's what I knew I had to reach out to you and ask you to be on a feminist hot dog um that was pretty much the best um (laughs) So, yeah. And I also I really love how you begin your interviews. So I'm going to take a page from your book and ask you to tell us um, a little bit about who you are and what words you use to describe yourself and how you identify. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I have a lot of different ways that I identify. I've recently um, through my own research and Doing the podcast, um, I have come to identify as a fat person. I'm definitely down to destigmatize that word and to reclaim it and um, to not be afraid of it or ashamed of it. Um, I also identify as Lakota, which is my tribal affiliation. I'm native or um, a native person. Uh, I identify as an indigenous feminist and as a writer, a performer and an educator. And a lot of people are like, you you should identify as a comedian, but like, I don't know, not everything that I do in my writing and performing is comedy, although those are the origins of my writing and performing, so. And it definitely comes through. Yeah, it it is a huge part of who I am. (laughs) Um, But yeah, maybe I should tack 
also comedy on the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I am curious about what brought you to podcasting and what inspired you to create and launch Woman of Size. Well, you know, actually, originally the project was going to be a live show project. It was going to be a comedy show that amplified people of size in the comedy community. Um, Because being in Los Angeles, I mean, being anywhere, but specifically being in Los Angeles and being in Hollywood, like being a fat person is... um, it's just really hard to have any space that's like safe and fun and enjoyable where you don't feel like your body is being completely um, objectified. (laughs) Um, And I think that um, also we're encountering in Hollywood specifically these kind of new voices who are trying to discuss fatness, like in film and TV. Um, And it's like not quite hitting the um, expectations of actual fat people. (laughs) Um, So I was like, this is a really important thing that we need to like address. And we also, a a lot of my peers and colleagues are comedy people. So I was like, we need a space for ourselves. Like it fucking sucks to have to grind in this industry and not have a community that you can talk with um, safely about a lot of the aggressions and microaggressions that you encounter as a fat person in a predominantly thin um, industry. An industry that praises thinness, that loves thinness. Anywho, it was going to be a live show that was um, really amplifying comedians of size. But I also, there are some problems that come with that because then if I invite people to do this show, am I labeling them fat? Like, am I stigmatizing them? Maybe they don't identify as that. So there were like a lot of really being seen as a fat person is one thing. Being heard as a fat person and not being seen is a totally different kind of approach to telling a story about fatness or about marginalization. You take the element of being seen out of the equation and um, I think it's easier to hear. Um, So I said, okay, maybe it's gonna be a live show and a podcast. And then I was like, maybe I just make a podcast and then occasionally have a live show. Mm. Um, And I like the idea of podcast, too, because podcasting is really a one way medium Um, and something that I think a lot of um, people have issues with is listening (laughs) to stories Mm. from marginalized people people so I was like this is perfect uh let's just make a podcast where people just talk into a microphone and tell their stories and talk about identity and um change the narrative and you know listeners just listen you are currently in your second season and you've mentioned on the show that your focus has changed a little bit from season one to season two can you talk about just how things have kind of evolved for you as you've been doing this for a long time now? Yeah. Um, I, you know, the first, when I first started, I, it really started as a comedy project, um, as many of my projects do. (laughs) So that's how it started. And I was like, I'm just going to get all my comedy friends on this podcast. Um, and then it, 
you know, I was like, well, I'm I'm hitting some like points where I need some deeper research and some information. So then I was, mm. you know, toward the end of the last season, I was like, I want to expand this to also include academics and researchers and people who have kind of done a lot of work around um, fat phobia, weight stigma, um, fat justice, fat positivity. And so I liked to pepper those people into the conversation. And yeah, and then season two happened and it's almost been a complete flip where I have a few comedians this season. Um to kind of break up the intense, like, instructional nature of the podcast. Yeah. But um, in the second season, I'm really deep diving deep into these issues um, from different points of view and trying to explore a lot of the different nuances that come with weight stigma and fat phobia. And yeah, it's been fascinating. It's been a really interesting journey. And so now it has it's kind of my own little research project. Um, I feel like I'm going through like a grad school, like um, like a fat justice grad school. Um, and it's taking, as m- all of my studies have, it takes a really uh, strong justice lens looking at um, fat phobia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm able to explore um, within that framework um, my own identity and how um, my own indigenous identity plays into that and and that opens up a whole other world as well to um me about you know around different identities and how uh fat phobia manifests within cultural groups and cultural norms and yeah it's just a taking a bit of a more intellectual approach this season yeah and i want to come back to what you just said about sort of feeling like it was almost like a mini grad school course because I got that sense too but in a way that is super accessible I mean I, I love that the fact that you're learning along with the listener and so you, you may have experts on the show but you're asking them to kind of break some of these things down in a way that makes these really complicated and you know, historically grounded ideas much easier to to kind of think about in ter- as you said sort of in terms of you know the day-to-day lives that we live so um i'm going to come back to that in yeah. a minute but i really would love to hear you tell us a little bit about your journey as a feminist and has that always been kind of part of how you identify and what are some of the feminism mile markers of your life yeah i I guess I have always been, I've always had a strong feminist gaze with which I've looked at the world. Um, but I think that my gaze has also um, arrived through the filter of my native identity, mm-hmm. um, which I think has inherently amplified a, um, a bit more of the um, what we would consider in like the English language to be a feminist Um, approach to living um but yeah like I was a little girl who like had dude friends in like middle school who would call me a feminist as like an insult you know Mm. like back when it meant being like a man hating like you go girl kind of a person like a little girl who like demanded that women were just as strong and powerful as boys and like you know I was that kind of person um (laughs) and 
and now I really am a man-hating person. <laughs> really uh, grew up to embody that little girl. Um. <laughs> it happens, and you you might not be surprised to learn that you're not the first person on the show who has who, who was that little girl in middle school. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so, like, certainly, like, it was definitely much more of um like a empowerment, you know, when it had that, that, um, stigma of like female empowerment as a girl growing up in the nineties, it was corny kind of, it had this weird, this, this air of cheesiness to it or, or just, and when I say corny and cheesy, I think what I am honing in on is that it felt very white. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It felt like, Pink power, you go girl, uh, you're just as strong. Um, but still looking at it through like um, the male gaze in a way. Right. You know, when I started to truly identify as a feminist was in my undergrad when I was, you know, taking women's studies courses and ethnic studies courses. Um and I immediately got involved with grassroots organizing when I was a student because I was part of a ethnic student union, the Native American Student Union at my college. And I collaborated, you know, we collaborated with the Black Student Union and the Jewish Student Union and Mecha and, uh, you know, Apasu, all of the different ethnic cultural student unions. We did a lot of like collaborating around um, students' issues that uh, pertain to being uh, students of color in. Um, a predominantly white academic setting. So I learned really early on, like the frameworks with which I wanted to approach that kind of work. And yeah, at the same time, I was kind of doing um, theater arts, and I was studying feminism in theater. And surprise, surprise, it was really white. Mm. (laughs) Um, So still kind of um, experiencing it differently than what I was studying, if that makes any sense. Like, experiencing feminism still through an indigenous lens, but not really having the language to be able to describe that, and um, not really having access to research that could help me build language around it. Um, Yeah. So I kind of waffled in my young adulthood about feminism. And felt like it I didn't I, I just didn't have the language you know to really understand what I was trying to embody <laughs> um but I understood the experience of a feminine identity within white spaces and I understood what it looked like within colonized native spaces and I also understood what it looked like in decolonized native spaces from a very young mm-hmm. age so yeah I think within the last five or so years, honestly, like in my 30s, isn't until I've really started to identify as an indigenous feminist um, and starting to see feminism through the lens of settler colonialism. And the reason I say that is because um, I think modern feminist thought um, does often come from a white lens. Mm -hmm. And I, and it does not have um, space for pre-colonial experience, which was largely balanced in terms of gender roles and even yeah. had um, roles for people who um, identified as multiple genders or 
a gender. Um, gender d- discrimination didn't really exist for indigenous people, you know, until until colonialism took over and imposed a, a government system and a structure um, upon the this land. And that imposition is what we now recognize to be patriarchy yeah. and a white supremacist patriarchy. Um, and within that, that paradigm, I recognize that the, the things that indigenous women and femme people are experiencing come from the same place that all oppressions arrive from, which is this white supremacist patriarchy. But, um, an indigenous feminist lens takes it back to settler colonialism as the source. Mm. Um, and it and it recognizes that this is not the natural state of this world <laughs> and that it hasn't been and that we have relatives who have experienced what it might otherwise look like. Um, but I think that feminism a lot of time leaves out that narrative and it doesn't address, it doesn't necessarily even look to Native women and indigenous feminists for answers when a lot of that body of thought um, and way of living, it has answers <laughs> in it if we were just to give it a little bit of focus and attention. Well, and I love what you said about balance because an issue that I think a lot of people are starting to wake up to about the narrative that feminism has to be about everything being equal. We have to have exactly the same thing for everybody. And that's not necessarily going to ultimately be um, an emancipatory approach to politics or even trying to kind of live and move in the world. And, you know, balance and equality are not the same thing. <laughs> so I, mm-hmm. I do, I think that's a really interesting um, word to use. And I want to think about that more. Um, your Lakota identity is, you know, as you said, is very central to who you are. And one of the things I appreciate um, about your posts is how current events affect you as a native person. And you also really drive home the point that native people are modern people, you know, who face modern issues, even though obviously there's this long and really important history and legacy to learn from. um, We can't only focus on that. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of well-meaning or quote unquote woke people who probably unintentionally reinforce that stereotype that native people are figures from the past. And I would love to hear you say more about that and, you know, offer maybe some examples um, of how you're using your voice and your place in the world to point that out when that's happening and and try to change that and how our listeners can resist that narrative and that idea. I could go on for an hour just about this alone, but I'll try to... Speaking of grad school, there's probably like an entire course on this or maybe even a PhD program. (laughs) Yeah, there are. I mean, my my own grandmother has a PhD in Indigenous women in education. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. So I think it's, yes, there are bodies of thought that talk about this, but I think that um, in my own experience, I think that 
Um, what we're seeing is, I mean, there's kind of one side of this coin, which is, you know, the lack of representation in mainstream culture for um, native presence um, and presence in contemporary in contemporary scenarios. Um, it's hard for people to understand that native people live like we in modern times, we're not all living on reservations Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that not all reservations are impoverished, you know, underdeveloped communities um, that have just been completely isolated and uh, underfunded by the federal government. I mean, that is certainly a case that has been portrayed, but it's not every case. And there have been certain um, federally endorsed and mandated social programs that have removed Native people, like family separation, for example. Family separation has been happening since settlers arrived on this land. The first, one of the first ways that that manifested was, um, well, the transatlantic slave trade, first of all, and the um, way in which the federal government established um, missions and um, boarding schools and took children away from um, their families on tribal land and put them through boarding school, kill the Indian, save the man methodology to assimilate natives into white culture. That is something that I don't think that we know enough about. <laughs> We're not taught it in school. I mean, certainly not I wasn't all. taught about it in school. Nope. Um, nope. But definitely something that our in Native communities we're very, very aware of and talk about it widely amongst ourselves and want people to know, like, this is our history. This is what we're living with. Like, these are the burdens that we carry. This is what we know about um, settler colonialism. And also, this is what is informing us moving forward um, in terms of creating a history, you know? So like I look to the future of our country and I see the cycles repeating themselves over and over again. And it, it, you know, honestly, it doesn't look different. Like even the Standing Rock Dakota Access Pipeline movement, the No Dapple movement, like that was very triggering to experience, um, even being a person who wasn't there, Um, because that is on the land of my people. This is the way that Native people have been functioning in modern society, (laughs) consistently resisting, um, like, corporate imposition um, and resource extraction. So even in, like, modern environmental movements, Native people aren't centered in those movements, and so it feels very depersonalized, I think, you know, it's like really easy for um, white environmentalists to like jump onto those movements and be like, yeah, man, (laughs) no dapple um, without really understanding the cultural context and the history behind that. Like on the other side of the coin, I mean, let me ask you this as a feminist yourself Mm -hmm. and a white person, can you imagine a world in which the federal government restores sovereignty to tribes, which means that within the United States, land allotments would be given back to native tribes, both federal, federally recognized tribes and unrecognized tribes. 
can I? <laughs> can you imagine that that could no. happen? No. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't. Yeah. I, I really can't. And that's what I think <clears throat> Native people are asking <laughs> for. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of bold change and um, like sovereignty that we need to continue to thrive um, as a people. I think that even feminists that a lot of people look to for strength have often have really paternalistic views about indigenous issues. For example, Elizabeth Warren recently blew it. <laughs> yeah, she did. She really did and and she now she's very highly suspect in native communities, you know? Like you can't just apologize and it's really frustrating um and that's this is also kind of where my feminism like is complicated <laughs> because I see through this lens I can't unsee it once I see it you know like I want to believe in Elizabeth Warren like I want to be able to vote for Elizabeth Warren I feel like in terms of her policies like this is the person that will make some concrete change that will be better for most people but I don't trust that she has native people's best interests in mind and I'm I'm a native person yeah um so it's really it's really frustrating I call it well-meaning whites where it's like your feminism or your justice has boundaries Mm -hmm. and there are just certain places where your justice ends and you're like yeah but not that well, no, look what just happened when you asked me that question. I was like, oh, my God. What? Yeah, <laughs> no, like we're not I, ready to I can't, actually my, take my that My brain step. cannot actually imagine that. Right. Like that's how few neural pathways have ever been committed to that idea before in my life. Um, yeah. And I think it also, I mean, in white ally spaces, we often talk about, well, what privileges are you willing to give up? And I think that pr- question that you pose is a really important one that doesn't get asked. And I can yeah. tell you in those spaces. So yeah. I actually really appreciate you raising that. And we also can't can't help but imagine that settler colonialism, like we believe as a nation, I think the mainstream understanding is, well, that's how that's how colonialism works. You have to commit genocide for it to work or they people have to have assimilated or we had to take the land from these people but that's not true that's a that was by design you know like if we can imagine there's a great quote in the um episode 217 of my podcast where Caleb Luna says if we can design a literal wall that we're constructing along the southern border of our country, then we can redesign what colonialism looked like and we can give people their land back. <laughs> like, it's not that fucking hard. I'm snapping. You can't see me, <laughs> but I'm snapping. Well, and I'm glad that you brought Caleb up because I originally I was planning to <laughs> uh, ask you the inappropriately complicated question about you know, on your podcast, you've addressed how settler colonialism is not only linked to genocide and white supremacy, but also to anti-fatness and also how anti-blackness relates to anti-fatness. But I obviously I think those are 
uh, topics that are too big to ask you to answer oh, man. one question. <laughs> so but big. so big. But if you could just reference um, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of episodes that we could direct listeners who might be interested in those topics, because I just think that they're unpacked really skillfully by you and your guests. Yeah. Well, I will just preface this by saying that, like, it is a larger discussion and I'm trying to have as many conversations about it as possible. But like, you know, anti-fatness comes from the same patriarchal system that we're suffering under. It's the same system that imposed genocide against native people in the Americas, as well as the same system that enforced the transatlantic slave trade. So, um, and um, there is an author named Sabrina String, who Caleb references in episode 217 with Caleb Luna. It's called Fearing the Black Body, um, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And that is a great um, place to start on the journey of unveiling that. I think another great episode is um, from season one toward the end of the season. I don't remember the exact number, but um, Yvette Dion is um, the guest and she identifies as a black feminist. And so, yeah, she also discusses black feminism and kind of the roots of um, fat phobia through that lens. So, yeah, those are two really good episodes to kind of um, start the intellectual journey. And they drop a lot of authors in those (laughs) episodes, too, which I think is really helpful. Um, I'm trying as hard as I can to also um, just discuss candidly people's experiences with their identities, um, specifically um, black people and indigenous people, because I think that those two populations are largely affected by settler colonialism. So Mm. I'm really doing a big research project about settler colonialism, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of dips its toe in fat phobia. (laughs) I don't know if it's right to call it a movement exactly, but it definitely feels feels like it to some extent that you know there's a lot more conversation and visibility and more accounts are springing up and we're seeing um a lot more representation of fat and larger bodies in media and you're someone who's followed and studied these ideas for a while how you've seen that movement change i do feel like there's a sense of um to a degree, some commercialization or commodification, mm, mm-hmm. like um, intersecting too. And what's I'm just curious to hear your take on that, and and how you sort of draw distinctions between body positivity messages that help and those that might feel more kind of inauthentic or really grounded more in in capitalism. The term body positivity, I don't even use it anymore. In fact, there was recently. Um, a tweet from uh, Megan Tonjas, and her tweet was, body positivity is dead Mm. now. It's fat liberation or bust. Love it. (laughs) And highly agree, highly agree. Um, And I feel like, really, in reality, body positivity isn't necessarily the goal of the original fat justice movements, which started in 
the 1960s with the civil rights movement by extremely marginalized people. <laughs> um, black women and trans femmes, um, all these, you know, extremely marginalized people who start these movements. And eventually, of course, it gets co-opted um, by whiteness. <laughs> and my affiliation with this movement, quote unquote, his is really new. Uh, so I don't claim to like have my finger on the pulse, um, to as great of a degree as others might have it. But I will say that like, even just in the last couple of years doing this podcast, that certainly like fat bodies in the mainstream has become more acceptable, but it's slow. It's slow. I mean, I was an educator for many years in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, which is one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. And if you're an educator in the Bronx, um, you better, if you aren't, if you haven't, (laughs) become educated around racial injustice and the, and, you know, major thought leaders in like black liberation movements and in education. And, you know, you need to know your community. Um, so there was a lot of like professional development and stuff that was available to us around these topics, you know, (laughs) and like social emotional learning and, you know, race, racism in the classroom and how to create safe culture for LGBTQ students and blah, blah, blah. Right. So like, there's a lot of that that happens, not enough in my opinion, but we do study it. However, never once as an educator, have I had a professional development session or workshop that addresses anti-fat aggressions and microaggressions? Never. I mean, what would it be like if in our work environments, like, you know, when we're going through like diversity trainings, we're also understanding or learning about weight stigma as a social injustice or disordered eating as a social injustice, you know? Um, It feels like we're so far away from that. And that's how far away we are, (laughs) you know? Um, We don't see fat justice as a justice issue and like value, um, personal value as a social justice issue. But I think it absolutely is. Um, So if we're not in a position where we're having conversations about this pretty widely, then we're still a long ways away from actual justice, (laughs) you know, and that will inform our positivity. Because I always say that, like, in terms of my own journey, like body positivity is it's an intellectual journey as much as it as it isn't a personal and emotional journey. Um we have to really think about like the origins of why we need a body positivity movement in the first place. <laughs> why do we need this? How has our right, value right, and exactly. self-worth become so low that we need a fucking dove body product to tell us that we're having some chub on our thighs and that's fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I understand that people are at different points in reclaiming like our self-acceptance and everything. Um, But I feel like my mission on the podcast and in life is to reinforce that it's actual work. It's actual intellectual work um, to learn to love our bodies and to at least be body neutral, you know, and that that work doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not just you and your mirror and some positive fucking thinking. It actually requires a lot of 
reading and listening and unlearning and, and redesigning the ways we think about bodies and selfhood. I mean, I'm on the journey and I'll tell you that most days, like I experience body neutrality, which has been a blessing. But there are moments for sure um, when I feel like shit about the way I look. And, and of course, like in those moments, it's not like I'm like, you know, man, I wish I had a fucking $15 like Gillette Venus extra smooth razor <laughs> to make <laughs> me feel better. It's like, I really just don't want to dislike myself. Like, I don't want to feel like this. And I don't want to feel like this about anybody else. I mean, that's the other thing. And it kind of speaks to the what I was saying earlier about like the limits of our justice. If we're self-proclaimed feminists walking around constantly looking in the mirror and asking other female friends, do I look fat? Like, that shit don't add up. Nope. <laughs> nope. That's not, that's not feminism. <laughs> but so many of us do it. And we do it to each other. The way that we see our bodies is directly affiliated with the way that we see others. And we are we are existing within these microaggressions all the time. We don't know that we're doing them. We don't know that we're doing them to other people. When other people, when fat people complain about these things, we often get gaslit about it. Mm-hmm. It's like your body positivity, if it doesn't include fat positivity, it ain't shit. That's right. So... I don't know. That's why I'm like, the if the body positivity isn't about disabled, black, fat, trans women, <laughs> like if that's not the center of the way that we are organizing around justice issues, any justice issue, then we're not liberating anybody. Well, we are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing lately. And I am, I'm going to jump in because my first thing kind of tags on to something that you said kind of toward the end of your comments about why body positivity just isn't enough and lacks the um, both sort of intellectual and psychological work and rigor to actually kind of untrain ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So a friend of mine and friend of the podcast, Kirsten. Hi, Kirsten. um, That's my sister's name. Oh, (laughs) I I love Mia Kirsten. Yeah, Kirsten's are good. They're good. Um, So she sent me a, I don't, it was like this little graphic um, that essentially the idea was instead of saying you're sorry say thank you and i was like okay what does that 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 is good yeah um and i kind of looked in like dove into it a little bit more and the idea is that there are so many times a day where in particular women um and in particular i think women who know that it's like it's easier for them to get by in life if they kind of like make themselves a little smaller and more palatable um will mm-hmm. say i'm sorry and even use it as a f- for reasons that have nothing to do with any indiscretion at all and we'll often even start sentences that way like sorry can you repeat that or sorry i just need to reach over here and do this thing or you know 
Yeah. It's like we don't even think of it. It's like totally instinctual. Totally. So the idea here is that you say thank you instead, which not only untrains us from casting ourselves as someone who has done something wrong, but it refocuses us regularly on gratitude, which pretty much anyone who studies this kind of thing will tell you that gratitude is a key ingredient to feelings of contentedness and self-love and all these kinds of things. So Mm. it's like just a subtle Mm. shift in language. Some examples are instead of saying, sorry, I'm late, you could say, thank you for waiting. Or instead of saying, um, sorry, I know I'm not making a lot of sense. You might say, thank you for working so hard to understand me. Or, sorry, I'm just kind of rambling. You could say, thank you for listening. You know, just recasting it as, um, like, I have this need to check in with the other person for whatever reason, but instead of making it, like, about me being bad, I'm going to make it about appreciating the other person. So a couple of people, I was like, I'm not sure where this idea came from. And I want to make sure that I'm crediting it correctly. And I'm, I've, I'm still not 100% sure. I've seen um, there's a writer named Severine Vincent who's written about it for Medium. And the earliest reference I've seen to it um, is there's a series of comics that are were drawn by a New York-based artist named Yao Shao. Mm-hmm. Um and that are really cool. So again, if there is a true originator out there that somebody knows who I can credit, I would love to, but those are the two who kind of came up when I was looking into it. And I also started thinking about this in the context of The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Mm -hmm. Taylor. And I was thinking about all the times when, like, when I'm like trying to get by somebody in a public place and I like brush past them and I'm like, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and would it, how would it feel to instead say, thank you for making space for me? Or like I do this on planes all the time when I'm with someone is already seated and I have to make them get up and I'm like, you know, practically like groveling, mm-hmm. apologizing, um, saying something like, well, thank you for making it easier to get to my seat, you know? And then I started thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Started thinking about, or what if I just didn't say anything? Like, not, not if I wasn't feeling it. Like, I think that there might be times when I don't really feel like saying thank you either. Um, I love the idea of saying totally. thank you, but I also feel like there might be times when I'm not, when I don't want to, um, or when yeah. that person isn't behaving toward me in a way where that they deserve to be thanked. And so just no, yes. like, it would be easier for me to get to my seat if you would just get up. <laughs> like, yeah. Or I'm trying to get over there. Can you please move out of my way? It has been really helpful for me to like click my thinking about what I'm going to say ahead two notches, I guess. Um, and I do think it has kind of made me feel different. Good. So that's just something I wanted to share. I love linguistic shifts. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, huh? Would you like to share with us what made your feminist heart sing lately? What is making my fem? Well, I have a lot of things that are making my feminist heart sing. I will. I'm going to use this to continue on my um, discussion about indigenous feminism to um, discuss another podcast that I think people should listen to. Um, that really makes my heart yeah. sing because it's too modern indigenous women um who are hosting the podcast um it's called all my relations 
It's a really great podcast um, hosted by Matika Wilbur, who is a Swinomish and Tulalip artist, photographer, and thinker. Um, she's one of the hosts. The other host is uh, Dr. Adrian Keene, who's a um, professor at Brown University and also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Um, she has a great blog called uh, Native Appropriations. It's a great resource if you're looking like, if you were like, hmm, is this appropriate? Is this a f- is this appropriation, what I'm doing? <laughs> uh, go to Native Appropriations and search what you're looking for, and I bet she's written something about it. Um, but yeah, the, the podcast, All My Relations, is really, really um, a lovely... Um, introduction to um, modern indigeneity and the way that we relate to each other as uh, native people. And one of my favorite episodes is called Decolonizing Sex. Um, and they interview um, Dr. Kim Talbert. Um, uh, she has kind of, she has a lot of different projects around DNA and um, tons of Twitter threads about the Elizabeth Warren DNA debacle um, and is really, yeah. really, she's, all of her research has been about um, DNA and about tr- uh, tribal affiliation. And, um, but she has a personal life project that she's been engaging in, which is essentially critical polyamory. Um, <laughs> like looking at polyamory through the lens of indigeneity. And this, it's episode number five. It's called Decolonizing Sex on the All My Relations podcast. I want everybody to listen to it because it helps to frame relationships in a way that it's so different, but it's so much more natural. And it in a way that like honors um, roles in relationships and, and taking many different forms. It also honors ways in which friendships are a form of intimacy for people. If you know, you're a person like me, who's like chronically single or like chosen single (laughs) or, you know, just like has not had successful heterosexual relationships with people. Um, this episode was like really, really lovely, a delightful, very reassuring, um, to hear somebody speak in an educated way about, um, looking at relationships through an indigenous lens and seeing how those relations can be different. Very cool. Oh, I, I am so loading that up on my, um, Oh yeah. It's my Apple super good. As soon as we get off, off the phone. This season of the podcast, I've gone back and forth between asking questions that I want to know the answers to and asking some listener questions and this one is both this is a listener question but it also is um something that i'm just really interested to hear your take on so i have some thoughts but i mostly want to hear your thoughts and i'm gonna dive in and read it now so dear feminist hot dog i work really hard at learning how to be a white ally that people of color would actually want I know I have more to learn and that all allies should never assume they've quote unquote arrived, but I am also concerned about how to be an ally to aspiring allies for lack of a better word. I'm around a lot of people who have not had the privileges I've had either in terms of education or of being given the gift of friendship and feedback from people of color. How do I bring them along 
without accidentally fucking up their journey when honestly I feel really frustrated a lot of the time and I find myself thinking things like, you should already know this. They need to be called out when they say things that aren't helpful or are downright problematic and it's a white ally's job. How do I do that without looking like I'm trying to win the woke Olympics or sounding like I'm someone's exasperated older sister? So I recognize that you are not a white person, but I think you've probably had the experience of being around people who maybe think that they are, you were talking earlier about Mm, the kind mm -hmm. of well-intentioned white person. Um, And do you have any tips or strategies that you have developed in terms of, you use also use the term calling in um, Mm -hmm. kind of as opposed to calling out what, and I just be I just be curious to hear your yeah, thoughts on that. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um well, I would say um as a native person, I am consistently a killjoy. <laughs> I live it and I love it. Um but I also um I I do in most spaces present as white so I'm white coded and I am not necessarily identified um by most people as a person of color and in a lot of spaces I don't identify myself as a person of color because I just um know my role um and I know when my role is to take a back seat and to listen and to not center Mm -hmm. myself Mm -hmm. I think the ultimate like kind of checkpoint or gut checkpoint is as a white ally is to ask yourself like uh when is it about me and when is it not um and if you are concerned about you know coming off as like uh you know being in the woke olympics or what have you um i think there's just ways to go about um the way that you're calling in your um your people and recognizing that that's not ever going to be a comfortable situation. Um, I mean, if you're truly looking to be a disruptor, then baby, it's not pretty. (laughs) It's fucking sucks. I mean, right. People don't like it. I mean, I experience it it within my own community. I think that that it's also interesting to kind of reposition yourself and recognize that it's not, this isn't an, an experience that you're um, having in isolation as a white person, like as a white ally. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sexism and, and um, you know, kind of colonized patriarchal values in Indian country. And it's something that I experience on a daily basis and it's really frustrating and it has, you know, it prevents me from getting jobs that I really want, you know, like that, that shit perpetuates itself in um, small communities. So you're not alone. I think that also the, 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 the easiest way um, to arm other allies is just to provide resources you know, like to position yourself mm-hmm. as a person who's like, hey, maybe they know about this. I mean, I have a lot of white allies in my community and 
Um, these people have things that I want and need. I have a friend that I'm thinking of right now who is um, really involved in like Los Angeles local um, politics, like uh, specifically like um, housing politics, you know? So it's like, oh, this person, like mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes when, you know, it's um, voting season and I get my ballot and I need to know about local initiatives. I'm like, this is who I'm going to hit up. Like, you know, I, I recognize yeah. their position in these communities. So it's like, we all are bringing skills to the table and we need to recognize that we all have um, skills and abilities and people with privilege are able to maneuver within systems in different ways. And to really, really embody privilege is to use them for good (laughs) you know um and to be wise about them and to speak about them and and then just to kind of have a really strong understanding of when it's time to be quiet and when it's time to listen um and to take a back seat and be a follower um so yeah I I get it I get that it's hard and I'm also kind of like there's no easy answer to that because disrupting is not easy Well, I appreciate that. And I do think that if somebody does actually take the time to say something to you, that is such a gift. The gut reaction is to be defensive or like I was just trying to help or that's not what I meant or, you know, whatever. But there's, you know, like you said, people don't like it. And so if someone has actually gone out of their way to check you on something it probably means they think that you have some potential and that you do care and that you probably don't want to be going around saying some stupid shit and that you know so again it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about saying thank you yeah um you know maybe that's a case for both i'm sorry and thank you are the appropriate remarks rather than bursting into tears and running out of the room or just quitting the committee. I also kind of question like if here's my thing, there's a lot of native people in my life and that is family and friendships and extended family. Like there's a lot of people in my community, in the native community that I exist within. If there are people that need to get called out and it's safe for me to call them out and they respond inappropriately, I'm not going to really waste my fucking energy on that person. Like that's not a person that I want to like right. band arms with and challenge the ills of society with, <laughs> you know, that person has a ways to go. So mm-hmm. I also do think that there's, you know, to notice when people push back against your, your calling in is like, it's a really good place to be like, all right, like maybe you're just not ready to hear it. I'm on a different life mission here. (laughs) Right, right. Maybe I'm just not ready to link arms with you. Yeah, you don't get access to this. Makes total sense. (laughs) All right, well, let's talk about the Hot Dog Hall of Fame, shall we? Yes, sure. Um, My inductee is Wilma Mankiller. Hell yes. Yeah, Wilma Mankiller is, um, I think that probably most Uh, non-native people know her to be a good friend of uh, Gloria Steinem. (laughs) But the reality of Wilma Mankiller is like so much more. She died in 2010 from um, multiple health problems, including breast cancer, lymphoma, and kidney disease. Um, 
but has an extremely storied life. As a child, Wilma Mankiller was um, part of a, a federal a, a federal uh, child separation <laughs> mandate that relocated families to San Francisco and across California from their reservations because the federal government didn't think that they, it was like wanted to urbanize native people. <laughs> um, and was a social worker for many, many years. And um, she returned to her um, tribal territory in Oklahoma in, I think, nineteen the late 1970s and started working for the tribe. Um, and basically, like, started so many community development pro- programs um, with the Cherokee Nation. Um, just, like, building water systems and... Um, bringing electricity to all the homes within the Cherokee tribe, which is a huge swath of land. I mean, it's like a major undertaking, but she also employed only Cherokee people to do this work. <laughs> you wow. know, it's just like major development. And um, she eventually became the first uh, female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So she was a chief from 1985 to 1995. Um, and during her administration, the, the tribe did a lot of um, amazing things. They opened like health clinics and, and like an ambulance service and created like early childhood education programs and adult education programs and job training programs. I mean, she changed the game and um, died too early, of course, yeah. um, as many of our native elders are taken too early and uh yeah she is there's a documentary i think on pbs or published by pbs called man killer that kind of tells the story of her life it's an inspiring documentary um but yeah wilma man killer is just amazing um i think there's a movie being made about her or no 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 there's a movie being made about gloria steinem and she's in it <laughs> she's not in it but a, there's a part for will and killer yeah someone is is it a documentary or is it like a, it's a movie because they were auditioning wow. native people for the role of wilma man killer oh my um, goodness yeah so put her in the dang hall of fame oh she's, she's in baby she is in she's a modern icon um for native people and is incredible well, thank you, Wilma Mankiller. Welcome to the Feminist Hot Dog Hall of Fame. I'm thrilled, thrilled to induct you. <laughs> so, Jana, I just am so this has been a production of thankful that you were um, willing to take the time to have this conversation. And I learned so much from talking with you today. This really has been super, not only informative, but um, I really just appreciate the the again the humor that you bring to some really serious conversations um yeah yeah, i look forward to listening to more episodes of woman of size thank you thanks so much for having me adrian this is really fun for me too great and thank you listeners for being here with us our theme music is by ava luna and loyalty freak music as always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show by becoming a patron via Patreon. 
And sign up for the Feminist Hot Dog newsletter so you never have to miss an episode or any hot dog related news. As always, thanks for listening. Love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye.